0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a warm day in a very deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner, and today I'm joined on the programme by Graham Farrant. Graham is the Chief Executive at Bournemouth Christchurch and Poole Council, a government administration situated within its namesake. Um, Graham, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today.
1: Thanks very much. I'm looking
0: forward to it. It's uh, great having you, Graham. Now, um, this podcast, first and foremost, is all about uh, leadership. And that's really being put to the test at the moment, um, both in business and in um, sort of government context, um, as we try to navigate the COVID-19 outbreak here in the UK. So tell me, being um, the chief executive of the local authority, how has it been for you trying to get through the last few weeks? Because I can imagine it's been a huge challenge.
1: It has. I think that phrase of a huge challenge is one that, uh, that that comes up time and time again. And uh, we also use the phrase unprecedented quite a lot, um, because it, it genuinely is unprecedented in, in most of our careers, uh, if not our lifetimes. Uh, from the point of view of Bournemouth former Christchurch and Poor Council, even greater challenge because we only got formed on the 1st of April 2019, Uh, Out of a coming together of two unitary councils, one district council, and uh, about a sixth of Dorset County Council, so in probably the most complex local government reorganisation in England uh, since 1974, actually, about the last 45 years. So we had that merger. We're still going through that. We're still, in many cases, running three different services, uh, three different standards. And uh, then we hit a global pandemic which has really turned everybody's lives upside down. So for us, that leadership challenge, both leadership within the council where people were very uncertain about service standards and also that leadership challenge to our communities, uh, now a much bigger council, much more more clout and regional influence, but also a real impact on people's lives. So doing all of that and then facing the global pandemic has really given us uh, a, a huge challenge, uh, as you say, um, but we're we're coming through it. What what is really interesting for me? It's one of the phrases I do use internally. This is what we've trained for. I've been on the emergency planning courses probably for the last thirty um, odd years, and uh, what we have is a is a huge example of all of the things that we've been taught that we've trained for uh, coming into play much longer response to an emergency than we would have expected uh, but also um, people that are trained to do this. those so systems and procedures that are well-worn, well-tested and those are coming into play. So, uh, One of my messages about local government reorganisation is what was successful was program managing it uh, almost to death but using that program management process in this emergency. We have emergency responses, we're using the responses that, that we had and that we've tested So part of leadership is is sticking to the plan. Um, Part of it is about looking at where you've got to adapt the plan. and, And we've had to do both of those for the last few weeks.
0: Absolutely. And um, the ability to be um, reactive as well as proactive um, is really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it? Because there are changing guidelines and changing circumstances and businesses and local authorities are having to adapt to those, aren't they? It's um, really, really testing that ability to sort of make snap decisions quickly, but also make pragmatic and sensible decisions as well.
1: Yes, and and most people wouldn't consider local government to be fast-moving uh, transformative and, and quick in terms of decision-making. So we've had to adapt to that. We've had to change some of our structures. So uh, we, we're using council and meetings less frequently, it has to be said. Uh, we have a corporate incident management team that's been set up with meeting three times a week to make those decisions. And I think we shouldn't be surprised as well that the guidance changes because um, even from government's perspective, despite all the planning, nobody has actually faced uh, and worked in a crisis of this enormity in this scale. So you know, it's not surprising that we're getting slightly different messages, that it takes a while for those to settle. Um, the issue of, of personal protective equipment, I think, is a really good example where people are, are being critical about the lack of PPE, but actually we've never had to look at supplying PPE on a national basis at this scale in this speed uh, before. So um, I think we're getting through it as best we can, you know, no doubt there are lessons to learn from it, but I think we've seen a real flexibility in decision making about who needs it, who needs what, how quickly we can get there, and actually coming together with public sector agencies to to work with those. Those are really the highest priorities. So all those leaders coming together in in uncomfortable territory, working across the boundaries between organisations, uh, working in a new way. And of course, all having to do that from home or other locations, working remotely using a new technology, which most people weren't familiar with three months ago. So, you yeah, know, some real challenges, but some some real benefit as well for the ways that we've been working together.
0: Mm. And it's said quite often that these are very much unprecedented times, but it's important to remember as well as a uh, disruptive time that it's very much a learning curve, isn't it? And you say yourself, there will yep. be lessons to take away from this. And what do you think some of those yep. lessons are that leaders should be taking into account from the handling of this crisis?
1: Well, I, I think one is really recognising the flexibility of people. One of the things that I've often said to, uh, to, to colleagues, people uh, I've with, is Probably 80% of our skills are transferable skills and 20% are specific to the job role. And most people believe it's the other way around. Most people believe that most of what they do is in a professional discipline. But what we're seeing in this crisis, I think, is a lot of people changing their ways of working, changing the areas they're working in. We've redeployed about 100 people from, for example, from libraries to our contact centre to work with the community on providing them with resilience. We've moved people across between functions. Uh, one of our HR team is now leading the operation to set up a new call centre. Um, we're seeing transferable skills uh, being recognised, and we're also seeing people work much more flexibly, and that, that will be good for us in the long term because it will give us a flexibility and a speed of response, make us more fleet of foot. So I've just come off a national conference call of chief executives of council that are working with MHCLG. Um, Yesterday I was on a call with 27 of us on a Skype call, and that worked very well as well. Our local resilience forum has got about 25 people on, and we're now working in ways that we couldn't have imagined uh, even three months ago. The first local resilience forum meeting, we all drove out to Police HQ in Dorset, and we held the resilience forum there. The second one, everybody was on Skype. So it really has been a change of, of ways of working that is, is quite impressive.
0: It certainly has um, changed the way of working. And do you think that these changes are going to be quite long-standing, and it will change the way that we work and also the way that we do business in future coming out of the other side of this?
1: I think they, they, they are if I get my way because uh, one of the things we're looking at, we, we were in the middle of transforming the council of the transformation programme that took it from being... Uh, in, in, in practice, quite old fashioned, very paper based, lots of meetings, people travel to meetings. We had an agenda to move into, you know, Microsoft Teams and that much more flexible environment using Skype, Zoom, you know, all other sorts of meetings. Uh, we're doing that now and we will not go back to the old ways of working, uh, because we know that we can get more efficient. We've seen speed of response. Look at the speed of decision making now. And uh, there's no reason why we can't maintain that pace and that momentum uh, as we go out of this crisis. Just need to make sure people aren't working 12 hours a day, seven days a week, um, because that's where some of our uh, responsive services are now. But actually, it's really good for us in terms of that speed. Um, And part of the, the problem, I think, of the challenge in normal transformations is, why are you doing it? What's the momentum? What's the story that binds everybody into it? And of course, this crisis has given us that story, it's given the text, and it's enabled people to change their ways of working for a reason. I've now got to persuade them and create the storyline of the narrative that, that means we stick with it going forward. Mm.
0: So it's interesting to hear about that working philosophy that you would like to essentially um, impose on the, uh, the council there. Um, but what would you say are some of the influences behind your way of working and your own way of leading, Graham?
1: Well, I, think, I mean, I've had an interesting career. the sense I've worked in the private sector in private equity-backed uh, business, I've worked in a privately owned business, I've worked in local government, and I've worked in the civil service as well. And actually, if you take the best of all of those, you can really craft something that's different, that's flexible, um, and that allows people to push the boundaries. Um, they all have their downsides. They all have their, their, their positives. And I'm really trying to draw the best. Of all of those out. But my, my last job was at the Land Registry, where I was uh, Her Majesty's Chief Land Registrar, uh, which is a great job title, but also Chief Executive of the Land Registry. And we were tra- transforming it, we were digitising it, we were making our systems easier for people to use. Uh, there we had 14 offices across the country. If we used to travel for board meetings, maybe travelling from Durham down to Croydon, we introduced Skype, we introduced uh, some surface hubs and things that enabled people to work remotely suddenly the travelling cost, the travelling time was mm-hmm. removed and it became a much more efficient organisation we were also trying to enable customers to access all of our services online because most land transactions actually you can complete online so trying to modernise those very aged and venerable institutions, actually has been a real challenge and, and that's what I'm trying to do at BCC Council as well Um Uh, And, you know, this this crisis has has really helped us, I guess, in terms of trying to accelerate some of that.
0: And when you've been trying to modernise these institutions previously, uh, did you find any opposition to that? Or did you find it was quite easy getting them to embrace the future, as it were?
1: Well, I I think one of the main jobs uh, uh, that you have as a leader is to construct the narrative and the reasoning why people might want to change and why people might want to do things differently. So, yes, you could instruct, and you can say, if you don't, I'll thank you. Much better if you can create a positive environment So the reason we're doing this is for the following. We're trying to achieve the following. Whether the narrative is we're trying to take the land registry and make it more accessible to our customers online, the most modern uh, digital land registration in the world, that type of thing, or whether it's around efficiency and saving costs. Um, then actually, you've got a reason and a narrative behind it, and I think that. Yeah, you know, the key lesson for me is that, that that my job as leader very often is is one of storytelling, create the narrative, persuade people about the narrative. I in, I don't. They will drive the change. You don't have to. You can effectively sit back and think about what's the next stage. What's the next stage?
0: Absolutely, and I think uh, taking that approach uh, probably is um, actually uh, coming to fruition now when people are working from home and having to be independent and not essentially be sort of led right from one place, as it were, because. Um, Yeah, that culture of positivity is so so important to kind of get the best out of people, and also in times of crisis, you see people bringing the best out in themselves as well, don't you?
1: Yeah, it it is, and and one of the key things for me is the BCP Council has got a vision to create vibrant communities with an outstanding quality of life where everybody plays an active role. Now you can look at that and say, okay, that's just you know it's a vision statement; it doesn't really mean anything, or or you can say actually, if we want to create vibrant communities. What does that mean for us? What is vibrant? You know, how does the community work? What do we mean uh, when we say we want everybody to play an active role? How do we get people engaged in that? Can we change the way we design our services so that they are more able to meet the needs of local people and interpret it? And um, you know, in terms of uh, leadership of the organisation, that's what I'm trying to bring, so that people naturally make the right decisions. If you set the framework, if you set the direction, then hopefully next time they have to make a decision, they'll make the right one. And then when you get to a time of crisis like this, particularly if you can use this to support that uh, that vision, that vision stands true for us uh, now, just as much as it did three or four months ago. So we could take our decisions in, in that context. Um, that That's the way that I approach it. So that land registry, where we had an ambition to be the world leading land registry, speed, simplicity, and an open approach to data, we said... If this decision helps us to be the fastest in the world, the most open in the world, uh, then that's a good thing. If it goes against it, then, then don't do it. So you can set some metrics by which everybody will say can, can make the right decision first time, every
0: time. Absolutely. But I think it's also important, isn't it, to recognise that human beings can sometimes be fallible and can sometimes make mistakes, but it's also about encouraging them as well to not necessarily be afraid of um, shortcomings, but also to kind of embrace failure and learn from those mistakes to make sure that they make the best decisions the next time around.
1: Absolutely. So, so, you know, some of the concepts of Agile working around fail fast. So if you're going to get it wrong, get it wrong quickly. Uh, one of my ideas is, 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 is just don't make the same mistake twice. So make a mistake by all means. Make a different mistake next time because, because making the same mistake just feels like you're not learning. Uh, whereas, you know, if you are making mistakes, you're also almost certainly pushing the boundaries and, and evolving the service or the organization, which, which has to be a good thing.
0: And I think even as a leader as well, I mean, it's important to try things and maybe make mistakes, push the boundaries a bit and then learn from what you've tried, that trial and error to try and improve things going forward as well, isn't it? I mean, it's so important in terms of leadership.
1: Yeah, it is. And and holding people to account for their decisions, but not doing that in a way that is overbearing or too harsh or too sort of disciplinary, disciplinarian, it's... You know, it really is about trying to, to say to people, okay, how could you have done that better? How could we have done that better? How could we make that decision next time? Okay, let's let's do that then.
0: Exactly right. It's all about essentially making things better for the future and uh, with the future in mind as well, Graham. before we do wrap things up. Um, do you give me an idea of what you imagine the next year will hold for the local authority and uh, what you really hope collectively to achieve in that time as well.
1: So I guess our starting point is uh, recovery from this, this current uh, global pandemic. When when we're talking about recovery, though, we're starting to use the phrase reset. So don't think about recovery back to what you had. Think about how you want to reset the standards, reset the services, uh, reset the, uh, the, the parameters of the organization. So we're very clear that we will use this to grow out of. Um, so when we look at our services before we bring them back up in line, we'll be checking that they are modern. It will accelerate a lot of that merger of, of the three services and it will help us to accelerate our transformation program. And, and then, you know, on a, on a, a very parochial view, we want Bournemouth, Christchurch and Paul to really be flying as a region for investment, for tourism, for the environment, for taking all of those things and really making the, the most of it. And in terms of the council, I want it to be the most modern and accessible council uh, in the country. So that's the agenda. How do we drive it to get there? We've got to have that transformation. We've got to have the change. And we will see some of that being implemented over the next 12 months, I'm sure.
0: And I think it'd be really interesting to see how those changes are implemented in the next year and uh, perhaps in a few months' time when those changes start to come to fruition. We can perhaps have you back on the programme, Graham, to look at those changes retrospectively and just look at how the hopes that you outlined today have been borne out of in the coming weeks and months. And, but for now, I have to say it's been so insightful and um, an absolute pleasure having you on today's programme. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me for the benefit of the listeners.
1: You're welcome. No problem at all. And yeah, I look
0: forward to coming back and holding myself to account. I I really enjoyed it, Graham. And I think it'd be fantastic to have you back on in future, as I say, to do just that. Um, Coming up next on uh, today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricketer, Sir Andrew Strauss. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking to Sir Andrew. And that's coming up next.
2: Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, it, the pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood
3: legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f- focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows